what was what was Washington's key political skill? Where did he shine politically? What was it? Was it a natural skill that he de- but that he developed? Was he a natural politician? Um, I think you talk in the book about how he would enter a room and somehow he would exude, uh, bring out confidence in himself. Yeah, it, it helps to be the tallest person in the room, um, okay. which he, he pretty much always was. Okay. Um, he had a self-possession from an early age, people remarked on it, um, which we would probably today call charisma, but a, a certainty, uh, a confidence, but but not a haughtiness or an arrogance. Um, he, he was actually modest, and, and his contemporaries called him affable. So I think that combination of qualities and um, you might even pass it off as his disposition um, were essential uh, and were his great advantage. But I would also add he was an extraordinarily determined and hardworking person. Um, I I sometimes refer to him as the hardest working man in colonial America. And I I do think he was. he would put in routinely 12 and 14 hour days. Uh, and that makes a difference. Uh, you know, he was a, not a good orator. Uh, he was always shy about his ec- educational attainments, which were modest. Uh, but he could get things done, which is a gift. And a gift, uh, an appallingly large number of people don't have, <laughs> you find as you live in the world. And uh, he could, and that became sort of his calling card as a young politician and through his career is, you know, there's a phrase in American uh, legend, you know, let George do it, uh, which is just one that resonates. I didn't write about it in the book, but it's something when I was a boy, you would always hear, and it was a a reference to people sort of sloughing off responsibility, but you know, from the very start, you know, people did let George do it because he he got it done. So that that mix of personal qualities and his ability to achieve what he set out to achieve, uh, I think, is what really set him apart. What was that um, characteristic of him and that political skill? Was was that? what made him into a military leader? In other words, when you, when you look at military leaders in history, you know, you talk about Alexander, Hannibal, Napoleon, don't normally place, maybe they do, but I've never really heard historians place Washington in that league. I, I don't think he belongs in that league as a pure military leader. Um, and, you know, the military historians love to dissect his failures, and he had a few uh, as a commander. Uh, the Battle of New York stands as, you know, one botch after another for a period of weeks. Uh, so what was special about Washington and, and was well matched to his situation was, I think, his political talent as a military leader. He had to deal with our Continental Congress. He had to deal with uh, state governors. He had to deal with state legislatures. He had to deal with um, local officials, uh, always trying to get supplies. His, his army was 
chronically underfed, undersupplied. And he spent much of the day. And, and of course, he had to deal with his own officers. And I've had a lot of military people tell me afterwards that there is nothing as political as a military establishment. Um, so I think his political skills were essential to achieving the military outcome of victory. And, you know, his victory was essentially outlasting the British. Um, and it turns out when your opponent is far from home in a not obviously smart war, if you can outlast him, you, you, you probably are going to win. Uh, we've seen some pretty modern examples of that as well. Uh, and I think Washington understood that. Uh, he was not the world's great tactician. Uh, if you needed a battle plan, he would come up with one, but it might be good and it might not. But if you needed to understand the long-term strategy of how to win the war, um, he was very strong and, and he got it done. He did win. So, you know, although people like to denigrate his military talents, you know, he won. <laughs> what, how do you approach Washington's views and actions regarding slavery? I think it's real important to be uh, open and candid about it because, um, I mean, it's very controversial these days and properly so, but also uh, these are human beings whose lives were, were blighted, um, the enslaved people uh, of early America. Um, Washington, until Middle, his middle years, so when he goes off to be commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, uh, shows no evidence of regret, doubts, concern about the morality of slavery. I, I looked for it. I couldn't find it. Um, his military service changes him in the Continental Army, and I see it as, as two factors. One is he was exposed to anti-slavery views in, extensively. Uh, you know, in Virginia, there just were not a lot of people walking around saying slavery is terrible. Uh, it's certainly not in his social uh, uh, milieu. But in the army, he was surrounded by people like uh, Lafayette and Alexander Hamilton, uh, a fellow named John Lawrence from South Carolina, who thought slavery was a crime and told him so. Uh, I think he also was confronted by the remarkable uh, display of courage by African-American soldiers who joined the army, even though they faced terrible prejudice and many had been slaves, uh, and gave their health and in many instances their lives for American liberty, his liberty, and I think he just had to face up to the fact that owning them was, was a crime. Uh, during the war, he resolves to become a good slave owner, and he instructs his uh, farm manager to follow certain practices that a good slave owner would follow. But he realizes, I think, pretty quickly that that's just an oxymoron. It's silly. There is no such thing as a good slave owner. Um, and he spends about 10 years, the last 10 years of his life, trying to figure out a way 
to um, stop being a slave owner. And it's, it's a balance. You know, he doesn't want to lose his standard of living. Uh, he's got this unfortunate legal conundrum, which is about a third, a little more than a third of his, the slaves at Mount Vernon he owns, and he can free them. But the rest of them are actually owned by Martha's first husband's estate. It's a very uh, sort of complicated thing. But Washington cannot free them unless he buys them from the estate, and he has to pay a fair price because the beneficiaries of the estate are Marsha's step, Marsha's, Martha's grandchildren, who are his step-grandchildren. And so he needs a lot of cash. It was more cash than he'd ever had in his life. Uh, and he owns a lot of land, uh, much speculative land out west, and he tries to sell it. And with friends, uh, just a few intimates, he's clear that he is trying to sell this land so he can then free his slaves, or at least lease the land so he has enough, enough income to pay out over time. But he never succeeds. And uh, in his final year, uh, he just confronts the fact that this, it's not going to happen. He's not going to make that happen. So he rewrites his will to free the slaves he owns. Um, and uh, there's just nothing he can do about the others. Uh, it's awkward because, because both groups of slaves lived at Mount Vernon, there's been intermarriage. So you would have a family that would be part free and part enslaved, which is uh, very difficult. And he, he bemoans that, but it's the best he can do. And when he dies, uh, his will is implemented uh, by Martha and his executors. And uh, I think some 130 some slaves are set free. Uh, it's a partial action. I think he did it principally as an act of personal contrition. Uh, but, uh, you know, that some people wonder if he was hoping to set an example for the country. I think he would have been delighted if he had, but he was a hard-headed guy, and I don't think he really expected that, um, and it didn't work. Uh, so the only ones who were freed because of him were his own uh, enslaved people. So it's a very mixed uh, legacy. It was an issue that... Uh, we America struggled with for decades and uh, ineffectively, uh, and he did too.